Hi, welcome to Just Call Me Lise. I am your girl, Lisa. And I want to thank you once again for deciding to sit down, come along for a ride with me today. Before we get started today, I just want to encourage you to please share my link. The link is anchor.fm backslash lisa-robinson1. Again, that link is anchor.fm backslash lisa-robinson1. And also, if you are so inclined, there is a way that you can support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. Become an Anchor FM supporter of Just Call Me Lease with a small monthly donation. All right, today I have the distinct honor of introducing Mr. Christian White. He is, now Christian actually has a number <laughs> a number of different titles. So the one I'm going to introduce him as is the host of Listening to Learn Presents, which is a docu-series that airs on both YouTube and Facebook. He is the founder of the Dad Chronicles. He is also a family engagement specialist and a community activist in the Boston area, working with fathers, uh, he is a single dad with a child who is living with autism. And I think there's about 50 other titles. Christian, please introduce yourself. And if you want to give us the rest of your titles, drop those titles for us. I'll, I'll sum up all the titles as dad and mentor. Just dad and mentor. Well, those are the most important. Thank you. I really appreciate this honor. I really appreciate your being here. I When I started this podcast, you actually were one of the first people that I honestly wanted to have here. I have followed you since the first time that I actually saw you and heard you speak. Was that the mental health blog? That was part one of mental health that, that was. That was the first time that I ever heard you speak. And I knew at that moment I, I needed to keep hearing you speak. I needed to like follow you. I needed to hear your story. I needed to hear more of your story. And I've been following you since. Thank you. Your voice is one that needs to be heard. So hopefully we're going to get your voice out here heard even more today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So listen, let's tell the people, where are you from? Um, I was born in Hampshire. I lived there, I was literally just born. Within a few days, I was flown to Maine to get a procedure done on my heart. <clears throat> Ended up moving to Massachusetts to the Michigan neighborhood um, around Calumet Street. Um, grew up around there until I was about seven. Then we bounced around a lot, many different towns, cities, a couple of other states. But I eventually, around 13, ended up residing with my uncle and aunt who were living on Wombat Street in Rockstar. So that was where, like, I kind of count the beginning of growing up. Okay. And, and how long did you stay in Roxbury? Since forever. So, um, interestingly enough, so the way that I ended up at my uncle and aunt's was by a very unfortunate situation. Um, my dad was struggling with uh, making ends meet, and he got to a point where you know, he had to make some decisions, like some, some really tough decisions. And, you know, he sat my brother and I down and, 
you so many words, he just said he couldn't afford us anymore. That we had to find somewhere else to go. And so we had, there were offered two options. We could either live with our biological mom, whom I just met a month prior to that, or we could live with my uncle and aunt. So I'm 13 now, so I could live with my uncle and aunt. So we figured we might as well at least live with our uncle and aunt because at least we're still in Massachusetts. At least we're still somewhat comfortable, know the area, and all that. So yeah, so that's why I ended up um ended up going there, and um uh, it was very difficult transitioning from the background I had come from, which was traumatic, abusive, you know, um, neglectful, to end up in a home where both of my uncle and mom were both pastors, and it was such a cultural shock to be loved in a healthy way that it, it, it put me in such a, it was so overwhelming that I went to the courthouse, asked to have a chance put on me so I could go into a foster because I needed to feel some dysfunction. I could not exist in a healthy environment at all. I wasn't for me. And even so I ended up, uh, becoming a ward of the state. Um, by the, at the time, it was Department of Social Services as opposed to DC as it was DSS. Um, I ended up in some foster homes, went to residential homes, and I was very comfortable doing these things because it offered me a chance to sort of dwell in the past that I had always known. And so um, I eventually started, you know, ended up being arrested um, and, and ended up being introduced to the gang life in Roxbury. And I happened to live in the neighborhood of the Humble Man neighborhood. So naturally it was like gravitation towards that. And so I remained in Roxbury for many years and um, I was in and out of prison for a long time, but Roxbury has always been my roots, especially my uncle and aunt's home now. How do you feel that by getting the chins and starting that separation, do you feel like it created a wedge between yourself and your aunt and uncle? And have you been able to bridge that wedge now as an adult? So several things, yes, absolutely. There wasn't a wedge driven between me and my uncle because of my choices, but there was a wedge driven because of my choices in regards to my mom. So to be very clear, I've always, not now, but growing up, I struggled very hard with trusting women. Very hard. My dad would have multiple girlfriends in and out, but mostly I understood that my mom gave me up in the hospital and I lived with that. And, um, and it put me in a position where I could accept love much easier from men than I could from a woman. Because the moment she took on in any way, anything that I conceptualized as a mom, I automatically started disliking. I could literally like and love one of my dad's girlfriends and my stepmother up until the point they wanted to act like a mother. Once that happened, I would become rude, disrespectful. 
I would try to drive a wedge between my dad and her then. Um, I would I would go the whole nine yards to try to get things back to my level of comfortability. And how fast is forward, fast forward twelve years of being in and out of prison, my uncle always stuck by me. My uncle is a person that I would describe as if we all had a human god, that would be my human god. That's that's kind of how I see it. My uncle, my aunt, for so many years, it was hard to accept that she truly, genuinely just wanted to provide me with a healthy example on many levels. As I began dealing with the mental health, the post-traumatic stress, antisocial personality disorder, the um, borderline personality disorder, the major depression, antisocial personality disorder, and, and, and I mean, I don't subscribe to, you know, these are labels that don't define me, but, you know, they help in terms of a, a roadmap. If um, there are reasons why I would sweat for no reason or a heart on palpitate and, you know, things like the learning these, learning these concepts help with understanding that. Mm -hmm. So with my mind, it was a little different. Throughout the years, because I was still struggling with finding finding that confidence in myself to truly become the person that I, I am now and will become. We had many falling outs. In the last seven years, I've been out of prison um, for over five years now, but for the, about the last seven years, my aunt and I have come to the understanding that acceptance comes in its own time. I think even she learned that I was not just going to get it because I feel like what so many people sometimes misunderstand is when you see a child at 13, 14, 15, teenager, whatever, and you see they're catching cases, they're acting out, they're, those are just symptoms. They were sick before that. Yeah. So yeah. I was prepared for what I eventually experienced long before I ever ended up in, that, in those circles. And I always try to press that because I am a strong believer in we need to um, be much more attentive to young people, to children. Absolutely. Young people, children. Absolutely. Young people as well, and parents. But we can start so much from the beginning. And, and alongside that, Part of the difference between my dad and my uncle and aunt was my dad had been through so many of the struggles that I had, and he hadn't really dealt with it. So when I would express symptoms, it would actually turn him off because it would force him to look at himself. And, and just because he's my dad doesn't mean all of a sudden he's going to know exactly what to do for me. Yeah. He has to learn that. So it, it, it helped me to understand more for myself that my uncle and aunt, who were both doctors, they were both educated in certain ways, they were both self-aware, they could see. I mean, I would still wet the bed sometimes. I would still go number two in my pants at 13 sometimes. I would show behaviors that are very classic sexual abuse behaviors. And... They would try to draw out stuff, but I was already closed off by the time. 
So it only angered me when they tried to love me in those ways. But they were aware that something happened. They didn't know what, but they were aware of it. Whereas my dad, he could have been aware of it, but the more he was aware of it, the more it shut him down to that specific. So alongside addressing the mental health needs of children at an early age, and that doesn't mean they'll necessarily suffer from something, but being mindful of how things are affecting them and listening to them as they tell you how it affects them. It made me realize as a parent, I had to be open enough in myself to even learn how to listen to my child. So I always connect the two. Now, looking back now, as the adult that you are, and, you know, as the adult that I am, knowing that the traumas that I had as a young person, do you think, looking back, could there have been something else, another approach that could have been taken for the 13-year-old you that would have made a difference? You know, instead of... I'll be honest with you. Instead of them allowing the chins, had you been given, you know, had you been put into an intensive psychiatric wasn't ready care? I wasn't ready for that. So you think even if it had been put on, even if it had been nothing, given. When I was 13, there was absolutely nothing anybody could have done. But, so let me say this. <laughs> One of the places that I went when I was in DSS was a place called The Bridge. It was a residential home in Worcester at the time. And there was a woman named Karen, a staff woman, who always used to try to get through mm -hmm. Always used to try to get through And I, I, at 13 years old, there was absolutely nothing anybody could have done that would have stopped me from having to experience what I did at those points. And I was, I was already too far gone. There was no doubt I would have to struggle. Okay. Now, what I will say is, for those who know young people like that, stay consistent. Because as I began to gain self-confidence, self-worth, believe in myself, most of all, trust in my own thought process. All of those people who tried to push through to me came flooding back to me. And a lot of them I actually reached out to as an adult and um, basically said to them, look, like, don't ever, I heard you, man. I couldn't, I couldn't take it in, but I heard you. And um, that's important. I want people to know that People are going to get things in their own time, but when we're talking about children, keep trying. They yeah. will not forget. Yeah, even if they're not ready for it, even if they're not ready for it at 12, 13, yes. it, may, it may be at 22, it may be at 23. They're not ready for this because they don't even have the faculties to process what you're, what you're trying to give them. Mm -hmm. Just to be clear on that, but yes, there was there wasn't anything in that moment, but whatever awaited me to happen. 
which is sad, which is sad because, you know, maybe if, maybe if the intervention had gotten there at six or seven, before, before it got the pain, before the pain got so ingrained, before the pain got so ingrained. But that's where the awareness piece comes in, because there's no intervention if the people that see me aren't aware of it. Exactly. Now, when, when I moved in with my uncle and aunt, I was all yeah, Exactly, yeah, exactly. It was already in there. At that point, I mean, and let's be clear, they're middle class, uh, two daughters in private school, I could have easily been the male version of that. But there was no way that that could have happened. It that, was not even possible. That, that life was just totally non-existent for you. That life was just so, that was alien for you. That was not something that you had grown up with. It was, it was absolutely scary because to, to, in order to engage in certain activities, you have to be willing to be vulnerable to a degree. Yep. And I, I was probably super vulnerable, but I convinced myself, whether it was bravado, whatever the case may be, that it wasn't vulnerable. It wasn't a, it wasn't a vulnerability I was showing. It was a strength, which is all the things we make up in our heads. But yes, I, I it, it, there was nobody around me at the early stages that was aware enough to help see treatment. Understood. Understood. I, 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 I see it. I, I definitely understand and I see it. I, I'm grateful as a person who dealt with trauma early on in my life um, and whose mom was, was aware enough and knowledgeable enough and open enough to, to mental health and mental health treatment that immediately from the time I was seven years old put me right into to mental health, into treatment. You brought up the best point because everybody experiences trauma, but it's the, it's the interpretation of that event. And if you in any way have what you perceive as a as a as a healthy support system, that trauma is almost obsolete at that Exactly. It will work through. But if it festers and then other things are compounded, then it becomes patterns, habits. And, but no, I think that's a beautiful thing where we're aware enough to where we can spot something. And it's like, let's address this now before it gets to the point where we have to address multiple things because of this one issue. And you know the weird thing is though, and and I definitely want to return to to your story, but just something that piggybacks on what you said. I had other traumas as an early teen. Um, as an early teen and mid-teen, 
that were a lot more severe, that were not addressed, that were not addressed and that led me into years of unaddressed trauma, unaddressed abuse, and, and a lifestyle of abuse, you know, for years. And just as you just said, and, and it's weird because I came from a, a childhood of being where I was very healthily in therapy and came from this mindset of, you know, you deal with things in a very healthy way and this is how you address it and this is what you do. And now as an adult, I know that this is how you handle trauma. But for a block of my life, for my 20s and probably into my 30s, that wasn't how I addressed it. It was dealt with in a traumatic way. Traumas were dealt with in just the same kind of way that you're talking about. So let me ask you a question. What do you think, where do you think the disconnect, if that's the the way you're viewing it, happened between the skills you learned from your mom and others as a child in terms of dealing with the mental stuff? Where did that, when did you, did you just not think about that? I think I, I think it may be it may be and that may be something that people need to look at. It may be an issue of there's at that there's that target age, 12, 13, 14, where you are going through this emotional change. You know, your hormones are different. Your hormones are different. Um, I knew exactly what happened to to start the trigger, you know, but and and it started me off into isolating myself, and then you know, and it wasn't even something that was what I would consider horrific. You know, I was um, I was. I was attacked, but it wasn't a bad, it was a bad attack, but it wasn't a bad attack. I was stabbed by, by who turned out to be this, this Cuban pimp. I was 14 and this guy was a Cuban pimp um, and stabbed in the arm. Um, But it wasn't like a horrible stabbing and it wasn't, you know, that was it. There wasn't any sexual assault or anything like that. It was it was the stabbing. But it was enough to scare me into where I isolated and and I wasn't talking to people and, and that sort of thing. And got scared of people and scared of men. But and then but that was enough to kind of draw me back and then got into these relationships where I was kind of waiting for abuse. And, you know, and like I said, and although I came from this healthy background, I didn't come from a background with a father in my life. So that being... There wasn't one. I had no father in my life. 
I had no father in my life. There was no father physically, emotionally at all. Mentally, not not a phone call, not a text. Did you learn, how, how did you learn about that? Um, my mom had a great boyfriend. Okay. Um, but there were there were things about their situation that I'll keep private. Um, but um, but she had a great boyfriend that I loved very much, um, and I respect very much. But they, you know, they had their own situation. Um, I'll leave it at that, you know. But he was a good man, and I respect him very much. There wasn't anything negative about him. He, ne you know, wasn't anything I could say he ever did to any person in our house, in our home. He was good to every person in our home. You know, he treated my mother like a living doll. He treated me and my sisters like living dolls. So, you know, um, that was that. But other than that, that was the only image. Other than, you know, I grew up in the projects. Other than seeing the other men in the projects. And I, I, I can't really say that those were great inspirations because, you know, it was... situation I paused leaving for a little while I think until either he fell asleep or something and then like left so even in that situation I waited bleeding until like he fell asleep or something yes so yeah and that would be the same situation in other situations I mean, and I ask that because I feel like it's very important for all of us to understand what these patterns could look like. You know, and it's a very intricate pattern where you are a strong person by nature who, who can walk away from a situation, but in, in your mind, because of a certain experience, you make it hurt for doing so, and you don't want to experience that pain. Then I might as well stay and make it work. And that happens to a lot of us. It certainly happens to me. Yeah. So going back to you, let's let's turn it around. Let's turn it around. 
<laughs> so I love the story about because I know we're, we're getting there on time and we promise to keep it there on time. I love the story of how you came home on this last bit. You came last home. And last and final. Last and final. You came home and you became a dad. I, 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 came, I came home and was allowed to be a dad. Oh, hold on one second. I'm going to, I am going to pause you for one moment. Just because I, I have like one minute remaining on this timer on the on the recording and then I'm gonna just press it again to restart it. Okay? So sorry for that pause. Okay, we are back. I apologize for cutting you off. And we were just talking about when you came home for the last and final time. So, first of all, I, um, I was told by a very good mentor that words are everything. Use them correctly because they reinforce certain things. So, last and final sentence. But yes, when I came home, so the only thing I did not know in prison before I came home was what kind of dad I would be. I didn't know, I, I, I knew what I did not want to be, but I didn't know what I should be. And I came home, Christian was almost nine. Um, when I went to prison, his mother was eight and a half months pregnant. Um, I saw him once when he was 10 days old, 14 days old, and then twice when he was two. Wow. And then the next time I would see him, when he would be about almost nine. And it was interesting because so many of my friends, of my male friends, had come home after doing long sentences, and they treated their household like the CEO ran the cell board. And I understood why they did. I mean, we grew up in the system. We know in so many ways that both were father and mother figures, were seals, police, judges, lawyers, it's what we had. So I, I understand, but I didn't want to do that. I also did not want to parent like my dad parented. And the way that I told myself when I came home, I said, I'm just going to do the opposite of what my dad did. But then I started realizing, had I approached my son, with any sort of thought relating to my dad, I knew that it was already living in the past. I knew that it wasn't me. I knew that had I done so, I would still be enslaving myself to the way my dad taught me. And I didn't want to do that. So, and, and I want to, and I want to, and I also want to point out because it's extremely important. In the background of all this, I'm continually addressing my personal mental health issues and my personal mental health injuries. And so, when I, I get out, and the first thing I did, probably for the first three months, I literally just watched my son. I, what he eats, how he acts, how he responds, how to 
without comment, without guidance, without anything. I literally just studied it. Because I have to, he's, he's almost not, he's his own entity. He's not two or three where I can step back in and just be like, I'm in that, I'm in No, he's almost nine. I have to respect that he's his own person, first of all. We're not friends, but he's his own person. I have to let him teach me how to be the best dad I can be for him. Absolutely. Absolutely. The way it started out is he would be comfortable around me alone for an hour and a half before he would ask for his mom to do Then that turned into five hours. Then, Then it would be a half. Then it would be a day. Then it would like, and so it was a smooth progression. But my son taught me. My son taught me that when it comes to being a father, to listen to what he has to say. That what he says is important. It matters. It's absolutely crucial to him becoming the best person he can become, independent of me. Wow. Wow. And, you know, so, so it was an adjustment. And then, obviously, um, so after being home for just about two years, my son and his and his siblings and mom moved to Georgia. And so I was driving back and forth to Georgia several times a month. Well, typically once a month, sometimes several times a month. You know, like, I'm a sucker for my son. So... If my son calls me and he's like, Dad, I need a hug, or can you come and just, I would find a way to get to that point. Like, that, that was, a, it was, it was very important for me, for him to know, one, he could expect consistency, that I would never prevent and and two, that he knew I would drop everything. That was that was that was, uh, that was very important for me for him to begin to internalize. That's what my dad should do for me because he may have children one day, and I want him to do that for them. And so uh, I was driving back and forth for about six months, and then it was coming. It was nearing December, and I was you know it was agreed that I would pick him up for a Christmas vacation. Um, he would spend it. He would spend it with me. We would hang out, whatever. Um, so, unfortunately, fortunately, you know, depending on the, the exact circumstance, I go down to I go down to get him for Christmas vacation, pick him up, bring him back home, and we got home about eleven thirty, around twelve twenty eight. His mom texted me, and, and in essence, to paraphrase, she just said that um, she's just tired, so I should keep him. Wow. So I, so I kept him. And that that precipitated everything we see of me now. All the changes, all the updates, all the software upgrades, all of it. Because I had to learn faster than any other point in my life. Now I'm dealing with IEP meetings. I'm, I, you know, like, and I say this, like, I didn't even, like, I, I thought I 
I could just bring my son to school. I didn't know I had to get a physical, you know? Like, I mean, things that, if you're in the know, you'd be like, oh, but, like, look, like, we have, if you don't know something, we have to learn. You gotta learn. And I have had to learn a lot over the past almost three years now of having it for myself. It's a, it's a big learning lesson. It has, it, it has been one of the greatest experiences. It's beautiful to see. It's beautiful to see. I, I love watching your videos when you're talking to Christian. Just your conversations with him. He's just got, he's just got such a beautiful soul. And he really is. And I always speak age appropriate, but I do believe it's important for children to hear truths mm -hmm. in general. I mean, obviously there are some things you, you would you protect them from because they're not they're not old enough yet. You know, they couldn't deal with it. But fine. But in general theory, I always if he has a question, I answer it. That's that's my general theory. Mm -hmm. If he has a question, I will answer it. And I think that's that's a good way to deal with it. I think that's a good way to approach it. You yes. know, he's, he doesn't feel like, or he's not going to feel like you lied to him, you know, as opposed to you protected him. Yes. You know, there's, there's a big difference. Coming, coming from my experience and our experience as a father and son, the issues of abandonment trust were so prevalent at these early stages mm -hmm. that it was it was it's necessary to listen to, to answer them yes yes i love because yeah because you're you have to get them back into a right head space a right emotional space absolutely and that's going to come through the communication and through the follow-up i think one of my favorite things one of my favorite stories that you shared about christian was his coat uh, his coat that he did not want to get rid of that coat so for the listeners what she's mentioning is i bought christian a coat randomly and he never would take it off he would let it get stained and oh, he would never take it off. And I would have to pry it off to wash it, things like that. And the arms began to get battered and tear. And I'm like, Christian, it's time to throw this away. And he's like, no, you're not. I'm like, huh? Now the first, the first thing is the ego kicks in, all that, like, you know, you're the kid, I'm the dad, what are you talking, who are you talking to, first of all? And, um, and he goes, I'm like, so we go back and forth. I'm like, Christian, we, we, we need, we're getting rid of this. We get a new one. We get the same one, but we got to get a new one. And he was like, Dad, no, we can't do that. And I'm like, what do you, why? He's like, because that was the first coat you ever gave me when you came home. And it's like, it, it, it like, it, it instantly humbled me because at this point in our relationship, even though we had multiple conversations about emotions and 
things like that, we never touched upon me being out and what these first experiences were like for him. That was grand. And originally, like I said, the ego kicked in. Like, go throw the damn code. What are yeah. you doing? But then the aftermath was it, it made me become a better listener to him and to everybody but to him. And it helped me to check myself when it came to making snap judgments, the ego piece, like, listen for a second, there might be something there you're not seeing. If they're acting like that, they're acting like that for a reason. What is the reason? Learn the reason before you cast any sort of decision. And you never know, you never know also just what a small piece of something may mean to someone, you know, a small piece of you may mean to someone that you've given to someone may mean to someone. I know um, after my daughter's death, um, I had, you know, we were going through stuff and I just assumed we were just going to be donating, you know, a lot of our clothes and stuff like that. And we ended up not being able to get rid of any of her stuff because I have my like my adopted daughters along with my 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 daughter by birth. Then I have adopted daughters. I have do- not not any that have been adopted legally, but I have daughters that have just come to live with me. Have come to become my daughters by love, and they ended up coming down to South Carolina after my daughter was murdered. And literally, it was just, nope, we're all coming in, and this is what I'm taking, this is what I'm taking. And everything went, you know, between my niece and my daughters, everything went to a home, and it was just like, okay, so we're not going to donate anything. Like, nothing is going to go if everything to this day has a home. And it was just like, no, nothing is getting given to any student any person because I want a piece of this and I want a piece of this. Absolutely. I couldn't even imagine, like, I couldn't even imagine. And I think as parents, we all have these thoughts where it's like, unfortunately, I mean, something did, there was a tragedy in that particular case. I think in general, parents, like, I think about Christian and the autism and him being, very outspoken, very truthful. I mean, I, you know, I, I think about what if he gets hurt, like whether he get what, what if he gets accosted by the cops, like how, like I always think, like it, you know, it's and then I and then I then I play it out in my head. Now my son's gone. Like what do I do? When like I mean, I, I, I'm assuming parents do this in general. I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to assume, but I assume, and um. It's the most difficult thinking we can do. Like that's. I mean, it's that's a very hard conversation to have as a parent. You know, I'm raising a little one who's living with autism, 
So I so feel you on that. I also have a son, an older son, who will be ooh, 33 in October, who has autism as well. Um, always a higher functioning, his Asperger's. But, you know, growing up, he couldn't read social cues. Thankfully, Asperger's as well. Okay. Okay. Well, hopefully, I can't say that it'll be that way, but I know with my son, as he got older, he 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 grew to almost train himself yes. to be able. He figured out a way to learn his way to read those social cues. So now, completely independent, married, living on his own, you know, living with his wife, living out in Everett, working, doing wonderfully. So I, you know, I can say, but I know growing up, I had those same fears. You know, what happens? You know, what happens? Yeah, I think I, I, it's so scary when you think about, especially our boys, our boys, because, you know, unfortunately, it's, it seems to be our boys that are living with autism more than the girls. Boys seem to be diagnosed higher than girls um, for whatever reason. Boys tend to be diagnosed a little bit more than girls, but... Um, you know, I just, I worry about, I was just reading a story yesterday about a young man in, I want to say Virginia. Uh, I think he's either 19 or 22. And I really want to look into the story a little bit more because he was, he was, he's never offended before. And he was in a car crash. And one of his traits of his autism is that he utters words that he hears other people around him say. So when he got out of the crash, he wasn't inebriated or anything else. And I don't think the car crash was fatal. I think that it was a non-fatal crash, but he got out of the crash and the police were there. And he said, somebody that was on the bystander said, what are you trying to do? Kill yourself? And apparently in front of the police officer, he uttered, what are you trying to do? Kill yourself. And the police officers charged him with attempted murder because they said he was trying to commit suicide and crashed into someone. So this young man who apparently has never been in trouble is super sensitive, is on the lower functioning end of autistic is now in prison for something like 12 or 15 years. Um, mom is really traumatized. Son is really traumatized. He's 
you know, he's having a hard time in prison, clearly. You know, I I don't want to imagine the types of things that's happening with him. Because you've got this this kid who's gonna become he's gonna be a victim. He's gonna be victimized because he's not gonna be able to read social cues. You know, and I just read the story and it, it hurt my soul. It hurt my soul to read it because, you know, as a as a mom, as a parent, you know, these are things that you you, you think in your head. Oh my gosh, I don't want to ever see my child in this in this predicament. And then you start thinking, okay, he can never drive. He can never drive. You know, I'll be the driver. <laughs> I I don't want him to be that independent. <laughs> I'll, I'll just drive him everywhere. <laughs> I'll drive him everywhere. I'll bring him to school and I'll bring him home and I'll bring him to work. It's the finding that it's finding the balance of still being because we are typically we have a life before our kids. So I mean, it's always the balance of not losing yourself in your kid. Yes. You know that's a, it's a difficult balance. Yeah. It's a difficult balance. And where and how do you do it? And how do you do it? I'm definitely looking for you and, and following cues and, you know, Christian's older. And so I'm, I'm watching to see what you're going to do. I'm watching to see what you're going to do because it's been 30 years since I did it. It's been 30 years. So it's kind of like I'm doing it all over again. <laughs> but I know that you have, you had a time limit. So I know we've got to wrap this up. <laughs> I so want to thank you for being here with me. This is, I love it. Thank you. I appreciate it. I want to say you are welcome to come back anytime. If you ever want to be on here, talk about your shows, talk about anything, you can come back here and talk about the ABCs for all I care. <laughs> Tell me, you know, promote all your stuff, do whatever you want to do. You are more than welcome. I will. I thank you so much, Christian. And for everyone listening, please reach out to Christian White. He is on Facebook. As I said, please follow listening to learn presents you will see so many um, so, so just to clarify the page itself is listening to learn okay not listening to learn yes. presents yes. Yes. listening to learn on facebook also on youtube you can see the videos on youtube as well there are an amazing array of interviews that are just unbelievable um these are deep these are they go deep. You, you're going to learn. They go deep. We were just talking about this. Christian's an amazing interviewer. Uh, we talked about this before before we started the podcast. Um, you know, Christian's an amazing interviewer. He, he asks the right questions, but not only that, he really truly listens. Um, he, he really knows how to ask questions that people want to hear the answers to. But not only that, he's really sensitive and he meets people where they are. 
you know, he's respectful of where people are. And, and that's something that not a lot of, not everyone has. So I really want to applaud you for that question. You know, you, you know, you, you're very, you're very respectful to people and not everyone is that way. You're sensitive to people. And that's, that's an amazing trait. So I thank you. And thank you for being here. And I thank everyone for tuning in. <laughs> yeah, yep, the Christian's audio is going out. So <laughs> this is new for me. This is my first time ever recording this. So um, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> Thank you. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Check us out on. This is Lise. <laughs> Just call me Lise Podcast on Anchor FM. Bye.